asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you're like me, you probably have been approached for all kinds of contributions and gifts to all kinds of things, especially this time of year. you know, from the political parties that are asking for contributions to charitable organizations that are seeking to help fund all kinds of different things, to little girls selling cookies to the bell ringers outside the stores, to panhandlers on the street, to relatives that are getting together for a special appreciation gift maybe for parents. And the thing all of these requests have in common is this. I have something they want or need. (laughs) Often it's money, sometimes it's time or service. Now, if I were to give a course to needy persons on how to ask for help, it might start something like this. Please don't give me a story that is not true. Be truthful above all, and also be humble. Don't present yourself as asking for something that somehow you think I owe you. Here are some words that should be part of your vocabulary when asking for help. Please, thank you for your time. I'm sorry to any convenience you. Sir is helpful if it can be said with, as a genuine expression of respect. Then just give the facts of your story. You don't need to tell me everything, but do be truthful. You know, if you're an alcoholic, tell me you've messed up your life on alcohol and been kicked out of your family because you've ruined every loving relationship you've had in the past. I'll be more likely to help someone who is being honest with themselves than someone who's trying a con. And I've had those people come to me. And some of them trusted Christ. Now, the reason I mention these things is that this is what Jesus is doing. When his disciples notice how effective his prayer life is and ask him to teach them to pray, you know, after all, we come to God as beggars. And we need to know how he sees us and is willing to hear us. He tells them some words to say. It's a version of the Lord's Prayer. And then he gives them a couple of illustrations of what it is feels like to be the one being asked for stuff. He tries to help them understand God's point of view toward the one asking. After all, when it comes to prayer, you know, we're really kind of panhandlers begging at the door of God. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, but uh, the truth is we've all been disreputable spiritual life wastrels according to Romans chapter 3. And we don't deserve to have God help us. So we need to know how to present ourselves and understand his point of view. Well, we understand, first of all, from this, that his role is as a father. Jesus tells us to address God as father or our heavenly father. He tells us to recognize that he is holy 
and that he rules over all. Now, the fact that God views himself this way is very hopeful. Do you realize that Muslims do not know God as a heavenly father? They would never call God father. Such intimacy, such a familial relationship is beyond them. It is inconceivable to them. So, we know God as a heavenly father, especially if we've trusted Christ as our savior, and he wants to relate to us in that way. We must understand as well that this father image is not a dysfunctional father who selfishly thinks his family's job is to serve him and make him feel happy. The biblical father image is the man who takes responsibility for protecting and providing for his family. Fathers help their children. Fathers love their children. Fathers provide and protect their families. When God tells us to address him as father, he's assuming we understand the biblical father role and design. He also desires that we petition him according to his own knowledge of his character. He instructs us to pray according to his priorities. In other words, his name being hallowed, respected, set apart as holy and primary in our lives should be foremost in our petitioning because it's right in tune with who he truly is. He is the Holy One. Then we should see that his will being done comes before our needs being met if we're to have a fellowship relationship with him. Let me repeat that. His will being done comes before our needs being met if we're to have a relationship with him. It is really that we would fulfill the purposes for which he designed us. He wants us to be fruitful and fulfilled in life, but to understand that he is the one who will focus our fruitfulness and our fulfillment. The Lord tells a little story and gives an application, and as we look at it, we get a different perspective on prayer when we understand that we've just been told to go to the Father in prayer, and now Jesus, who came from heaven, gives us a picture of what the Father is like as we come to him. It's kind of a humorous uh, way that we wouldn't usually think of to portray the Father. But we learn several things about God's point of view on our timing in our prayers. When we understand that this parable gives heaven's point of view on our prayer situations, we must first understand that our sense of urgency is not God's emergency. Here, we are pictured as a man who's in a pickle. He's had somebody come to him at midnight. He hasn't been prepared for this. The ordinary rules of that society tell him he must provide hospitality for his friend who has come, but he doesn't have the means to provide that hospitality. If he refuses his friend, he would be thought to be a real jerk and it wouldn't be a good testimony. If he tells his guest, you know, I'm sorry, you're welcome to stay here, but I can't do anything for you and your aching feet and your hungry stomach until morning when I can get my act together. You know, that wasn't an acceptable answer in that culture. This too would be unacceptable. Now, we do not know why this fellow was not prepared for his guest. It may have been a matter of not knowing the guest was coming, or it may have been a matter of assuming that they would be coming at a different time, it may be that this is one of those guys that's just a little disorganized, you know. Nothing is told about why the guy that represents us 
is not prepared for this urgent situation. It's urgent to him because of his own desire for a good name, his desire to conform to a cultural standard of hospitality, and because of the need of his friend and because of the inconvenient timing of the need. But the way God is presented when the man representing us decides to do what is, is, is very interesting. God is presented as a man asleep with his family. He's doing what's normal to do. He seems to be a little bit bothered by the midnight request. However, it's not a request he's unprepared to meet. How often do we go to God and think something like this? Well, God, this is an emergency. You have to help me, and right now, or I'm going to suffer great loss of some kind. It may be loss of reputation or loss of fulfillment of an obligation, loss of esteem in someone's eyes. All these things were the possibilities with this man. But it seems like God is putting him off. Have you realized that God has no emergencies? An emergency is something that happens that causes some kind of a threat to our well-being that we were unprepared for. It emerges, and the danger or the threat emerges from out of nowhere. It often happens at an inopportune time. Got in my car to come here this morning and realized I had a flat tire. Wasn't time to fix it this morning. It's sitting in my driveway. We'll get to it. An inopportune time. And God has given me many illustrations of this truth in life. So let's think for a minute about what we call an emergency. We call something an emergency when it happens unexpectedly. It needs immediate attention or else a catastrophic result will come. Things such as broken bones, bodily injury, loss of property, loss of position, or death can be in the category of catastrophe. It interrupts your plans as you're doing them. But things that I may think of as an emergency because they have these qualities for me, I need to look at from God's point of view. From God's point of view, nothing happens unexpectedly. God is eternally omniscient. That means he already knows what is going to happen. He knows you're going to get that flat tire or hit that black ice and spin out of control or have your transmission go out and uh, start an engine fire. You're, you're going to have to have that heart attack or that hypertensive crisis. He has known that from before time began. So nothing happens unexpectedly with God. Secondly, his viewpoint toward calamity and catastrophe is different than ours. To us, the worst catastrophe that can happen is our unexpected death through some means. We can think back to the terror attacks of 9-11-2001 and all the people who were killed in that attack, and we still see the results of people dying from the after effects of the cleanup. And for those families who lost loved ones on that day, it was catastrophic. I'm not minimizing that at all. But you know, for the people who died in the Lord, it was entry into heaven. Where's the catastrophe there? They got to go to heaven. We lose people we love in all kinds of ways that seem to us untimely and catastrophic. Yet to every one of them who has died in the Lord, we know they are now with the Lord and enjoying his presence and peace and comfort and glory. 
God has determined for each one of us the last day we'll walk this earth. He knows it right now. He knows whether that day will come as an utter shock because of a farm accident or it will come at the end of a long period of suffering because of some terminal disease or if our heart will just stop because of a hit in a football game. And each of these circumstances are beyond our control and beyond our knowledge and can feel like a catastrophe. But because God is omnipotent and sovereign over our lives, they do not seem the same to him. So even what we may consider a catastrophe may not be catastrophic from God's point of view. That doesn't mean he's unfeeling in regard to the pain that we may suffer with these things. For us, emergencies interrupt our plans. <laughs> I've had vacations shortened and abandoned altogether because of church emergencies. I've had detours as I was trying to get somewhere because of breakdowns of vehicles. I've even walked out of a worship service in which I was preaching to counsel a man who was homicidal and suicidal. That was an interesting evening. Often emergencies make us change our plans. I'm sure you've had to change plans because you've had emergencies. And at the time of the particular emergency, those plans simply didn't seem as important. From God's point of view, our plans may or may not have been according to his will for us. The Bible tells us that God has ordained each day of our lives before even one of them came to be. The Bible tells us that we should consult with God as we make plans, knowing that he has the right to determine our steps. His determination for us may include things that we call emergencies, but they're not emergencies to God. He wasn't caught off guard, he was not unprepared, and death itself is not a calamity to God. He knows our eternity, whether it will be with him or apart for him, from him, and either eternity will be just in his eyes. so that it's not a surprise to him. The fact that God does not have emergencies does not mean you'll never have needs or never need to act fast to handle a situation. It simply means that God is not ever unprepared for anything that may happen to you. God is never unprepared for anything that may happen to you. Our surprise also does not challenge his supply. He's always ready for anything. Notice another thing that we learned from this parable's presentation of God. Our surprise doesn't challenge his supply. The friend that goes to his neighbor because he was caught without enough to offer his guest does not get the answer, go away, I don't have enough to meet your need. God always has enough for any need. God is never caught in short supply of anything. He is always the one we can go to about any need. Isn't that what the scriptures teach us in numerous places? Philippians 4.19 And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Matthew 6 
31 through 33. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness <clears throat> and all these things will be given to you as well. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Matthew 6, 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Before you even ask, God knows what you need. Something else we need to understand is that our boldness to ask God for help does not hinder his approachability. Now, we may get the impression from this parable that this neighbor that's being asked for help, the one who represents God in our prayers, doesn't seem very approachable. Yeah, think about it. He's got a neighbor pounding on his door at midnight. I've had that situation where <clears throat> the cop is pounding on my bedroom window at 2 o'clock in the morning. I go, what? What? And then get the fog out of my eyes and he says, hey, such and such a kid that I know you counseled has just been killed in a car accident. Will you come and meet with his mom? Of course. <clears throat> how often do we go to God when we have the feelings that we're being an inconvenience I think this is pretty common for us we think things like this well I kind of got myself into this emergency predicament because I didn't take care of my vehicle maintenance or I've not taken care of my health And, and we think, well, can I ask God for help with this thing? Because actually it's my own fault. You know? We think we should have done better. I know that's often my thought when I'm in a situation that I need God's help with. If, if only I had spent the money to put that transmission cooler in before using that Cadillac to tow a trailer, I wouldn't have blown the transmission on my way across the country. Others may have regrets like this. Well, if only I'd quit smoking when my kids wanted me to, and now here I am asking God to deliver me from this cancer. If only I had lived a life that was more spiritual, and here I am reaping the results of my misspent time and asking God to bail me out. If only I had not had that affair that wrecked my first marriage, and then I'd be a lot better off financially. Our self-image in going to God for help is often one where we would tell ourselves, I'm going to be a real nuisance to go to him with this. You know, I, I, I don't want to be a nuisance to God. But here's the totality of the picture. God is presenting himself in this whole instruction as a loving father. What loving father does not want his kids to come to them when they're in trouble? We want them to call us if they've messed up and have nowhere to go. It's only pride and a belief that we do not actually love them completely that would keep them from calling us. As a loving father, this is true even after your children have grown up and moved away, isn't it? You love to be the one that they can call. Part of the reason we want our children to come to us is because our reputation also rides on their shoulders. 
This kind of feeling is hinted at in the word that gets translated boldness here in verse 8. The idea is this. The man without the bread is meeting a strong cultural expectation of hospitality. He would be considered uncivilized not to meet this need. That loss of reputation would attach to the neighbor that's being asked for the food if the neighbor refused. God has allowed his name and reputation to rest on our shoulders as Christians. Why would he refuse to meet the needs we ask for that will enhance his reputation and sanctify his name among even the heathen? He would not. God wants his name to be seen as holy even among the heathen. That is how this instruction about prayer began. So this is why Jesus gives the application and encouragement that he gives here. Ask, seek, knock. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Notice that he says everyone. Not just the bold will receive when we ask, seek, and knock on the door of our Father. We may not even understand all about what our needs are or what God wants to do in a given situation, but we can trust that he will answer our prayers. We can trust that we can go to him regardless of our circumstance and timing, regardless of our limited understanding about what our needs really are and how he may want to fulfill them. One last aspect of this encouragement to ask, seek, and knock is this. These imply a persistence, both in the progression, repetition, and tense. We can understand Jesus to be saying to his disciples, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. The last aspect of this shows us God's point of view on his giving. The point of the sayings about a father not giving a child something dangerous if they ask for something good is this. Loving parents give appropriate gifts in response to their children's requests and needs. God the Father is a loving, wise parent, and he will give the appropriate things in response to the requests we make of him. Let me give you a couple of examples. We may think we need money, and so we ask God for money. We, he knows that we actually need better management of the money he's already given us. And so his response to our request is to give an opportunity to learn how to manage our money better. We may think we need to be healed of some illness we have in our flesh. When God knows that that illness is providing a spiritual benefit that helps us to become more Christ-like, so he gives us the strength to deal with the illness. That was the case with the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh. You know, the Apostle Paul who laid hands on people and healed people in Jesus' name, and so he has this terrible ailment. And he asked God three times, take this away from me, Lord. I think I could be such a more effective apostle if you would just make me well in regard to this. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. This is serving a a purpose in your life. Now I want you to understand, sometimes when you ask for God, 
for money. He knows that's exactly what you need, and he supplies it. I've seen that happen again and again. I remember a time when Joanne and I were contemplating a call to plant a church in Marquette, Kansas. I was 56 years old and felt I probably needed a church where I could do more saving for retirement. To go to Marquette was going to require taking a $10,000 cut in salary. There were many other complicators that could have been obstacles to accepting that call to pastor there. And I went to sleep one night and in a dream a man I had counseled visited uh, came to me and with a check for $10,000. He said it was because he so appreciated my counsel and I woke up the next morning and thought nothing of it. I thought maybe I was worried about that $10,000 cut and maybe I'd eaten too much pizza, you know, something like that. And then I went to church and the treasurer called me. He said, Pastor, I have an anonymous gift for you for $10,000. How do you want it? And I, I said, that's really interesting. I guess I'm going to be moving to Kansas. God was directing me through that supply. When we moved to Kansas and God used us to do a resurrection church plant, I told Joanne, okay, we're going to put this 10000 in a backup savings account, and when it's gone, we're out of here. You know, we never had to touch that $10,000. God knew he was going to supply for us and our ministry there. And God knows your need before you ask. And as long as you're seeking to be where he calls you to be and doing what he calls you to do, you will never lack for his supply. Sometimes you ask for healing and he supplies it just as simply and clearly as you asked. I have many stories of what appear to be miraculous healings. I'll never forget coming to the hospital with one of my parishioners dying of a heart attack. Her heart had been stopped for 45 minutes already. And the paramedics had rushed her to the hospital and had been working on her, and it didn't look like she was going to revive. And I walked into the family room and saw her kids with desperation in their eyes and knew from the Holy Spirit that they were not ready to see their mom die. I felt an unction from the Spirit, and I prayed immediately, Lord, start her heart. And just like that, her heart started beating, and she lived for three days while her children were able to say goodbye and let her go. I could give many other dramatic stories of God restarting hearts that had coded many times, of God healing a young lady in our church of cancer. She was already scheduled to have her arm removed as the only hope of a cure. And today she still has two arms that are normal and cancer-free. God can heal. But sometimes God's will is to pray for the person to grow in the Lord through the terminal experience and to be able to endure the suffering in his sovereignty as he has assigned it to him. I have the absolute confidence that God can heal anything that it is his will to heal. I believe God is healing my cancer. Even my son's ALS, the Holy Spirit has not led me to ask God to heal that, but rather to ask God to give my son strength to endure this incredible test in a way that will glorify the Lord. And thanks to the prayers of so many of you, I believe that is happening as Todd lies dying from this nightmare of a disease. 
And God is faithful to carry us through this time. The point is this. Trust God to know your truest needs exactly and to supply for them as you ask him. Don't get tired of asking because you don't get a clearly understood answer the first time you ask. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking on his door. Lastly, you must understand how God the Father delivers the things he brings. He works through the giving of the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I want you to remember the context of the question which this set of instructions from Jesus to his disciples came. The disciples had observed Jesus' prayer life. They saw that it was effective and powerful, and they wondered, how do you get a prayer life that is that effective and that powerful? And Jesus teaches how to pray, and I believe the most powerful prayer we ever pray is when we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the promise that Jesus is leaving his disciples with. God will send his Holy Spirit. This is consistent with what Paul taught us as well. Listen to Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. I'll tell you, we've been learning about what it is to come before God, to pray with groans, because we don't even know how to pray. And we have seen God be so faithful in all of this. Ephesians 6.18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So how should we pray when we come to God? First, come from out of the right relationship. He is your heavenly Father. Respect his name and his will, as well as his ability to supply your needs. Second, come with expectancy. He already knows your circumstances and needs, so ask, seek, knock with persistence. Third, seek the Holy Spirit as your first answer. When you pray in the Spirit, you get on the wavelength of eternal purposes. Follow these principles, and you'll see God do miracles. You'll see him provide guidance when you're filled with questions and doubts about what to do. You'll see him give comfort that is beyond your comprehension. And you'll see him glorify himself through your life. Your life will be fruitful for him and fulfilled in its purpose. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. 
We thank you that it instructs us as to who you are, your great love for us, your availability to us. You do not demand that we have the perfect words. You don't demand that we completely understand everything that you're trying to do in our lives. But we can know that you are there listening and that you will respond by your Holy Spirit. We thank you so much, Lord, for your Holy Spirit and for how he encourages our hearts and strengthens them to meet the trials and the testings of our days. In thy name we ask it. Amen.